title for this Sunday morning and next Sunday morning. The faith that saves must overcome the whole world. The faith that saves must overcome the whole world. And the text is 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. 1 John, right at the back of your Bible, you're getting close to the book of Revelation. 1 John 5, 1 to 12. Let me read and you follow along. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. I want you to notice as we read through this text, these 12 verses, how many times he will talk about believing in Jesus, believing in the Son, having faith in Jesus. I want you to notice how that idea just gets repeated over and over again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome for For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So that's twice. Six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. We'll probably get to those words next Sunday morning. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. That's three times. Whoever believes in the Son, that's four times, has the testimony in himself Whoever does not believe God, and notice how he equates believing in the Son and believing in God, showing Jesus God incarnate. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. That's five times. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Six times. Whoever has the Son, seven times, has life. And then this serious sentence. I can't imagine a more serious sentence in all of Scripture. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Doesn't mean they're not breathing. They're alive. There's no hope of eternal life. They don't have life. One of the advantages of working through a whole book of the Bible, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for the pastor, and it's a lot of work for the church. But one of the advantage of working through a whole book of the Bible is you're far more likely to get the whole picture of what the author is trying to say. Like there's a balance, a fullness, a context of the message that's on his heart. And, and you and I are much less likely to distort it if we see everything that the writer is saying. Now, today we're going to get a classic example of this principle of balance, 
completeness in hearing the Spirit's message to our church. Here's what you'll see. After an amazing string of verses, and we we spent several Sunday mornings on them, pointing out the freeness, the completeness of God's love for us, and, and words of encouragement to rely on that love, words to take the fear out of our souls. Right after that, John immediately moves back to this subject of our obedience. You can see it right there in that 1 John 5, 2, and the first part of verse 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we... So he's going to talk about loving God. When we love God, how do you know? Well, and obey his commandments. For this, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So my love for God certainly includes a deep uh, emotional attachment. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. It includes deep emotional engagement. It ought to. Worship should be expressive, not dry, not clinical, not mechanical. So my love for God includes that kind of emotional attachment, but it isn't limited to it. And John means to bring all of us back to this truth. That's why it's so important to be a student of the Word. We can't just talk about the importance of the Bible. We need to study it, study it right through, study it verse by verse, think about what it says, ask questions, see the arguments. The church should be a place where people eventually come to know all of the scriptures. No, no church is worth its salt if it just majors on, you know, fun and food and even humanitarianism. It's not nearly enough. Church is a place where people are trained to relate each part of the scripture to the whole of the scripture. Now, okay, comma, pause, because now I'm not in the sermon. I want to talk to you about something. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. I never intended to say this. So we had scripture up there. Chris put up, what was it, Psalm? Yeah. And you have these, these verses on there. The Lord blessing Israel, being good to Israel. How do you read that? When you read that, are you thinking of Jerusalem in the Middle East? Is that what you're thinking of? Because that, that, that totally misses the point. When you read those Psalms, talking about Zion, talking about Israel, you need, to, you need to say, wait a minute, I know what Galatians says. Who does Paul say the true descendants of Abraham are? Right here. It's us. Who does Paul say are the recipients of the covenant of Abraham, all the promises? Us. Us. So when you read those kinds of things, you have to be able to know that Paul's not just talking about the, the psalmist isn't just talking about the Middle East. There was application to it in that time, but it covers far more than that. God is good to Zion, bless Zion. That's us, that's the church. Now, you need to have, that's what I mean. You need to be able to take that part of scripture and say, wait a minute, that relates to this. And what happens is suddenly there's, suddenly you're, you're engaged There's meaning there. 
relating each part of Scripture to the whole. There's, there's a completeness in the revelation of God. And here's why all of this matters. Only truth that's known in its fullness, in its completeness. That's the truth that most effectively sets people free. Truth turn, learned lightly or partially can be a dangerous thing. Knowing only half the truth is a very dangerous place to be. See, if, if I know nothing at all about flying a plane and I choose to stay on the ground, I'm okay, right? But if I know very little about flying a plane and get up in the air, that's the dangerous place. That's the dangerous place. And that's the same idea that we're trying to get here. Knowing part of the truth can be worse than knowing none of it. And so John teaches on the nature of the Christian faith in these 12 verses that I read. And like all good teachers, John labors to keep two sides of living faith properly blended together. It's, it's full of freeness. It's full of grace. It's full of givenness. And it's packed with obedience and dedication and effort. And that, how that works is what John wants to deal with in our text. I see three thoughts. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at one of them this morning, and we'll look at two of them next Sunday morning. So if you're new, don't panic. Cedarview's used to this. Point number one, after I've been blithering for about 15 minutes. Point number one. When God's grace takes root in my understanding, it produces obedience with joy. I get that in verses two and three. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. There's the verb, obey the commandments. And this is, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And here's the sentence that's really important. And his commandments are not burdensome. Here, here, says John, is what God's grace does. He's trying to put it as bluntly and cleanly as he can. For the one who loves God through Jesus Christ, there is a commitment to obedience, and this obedience is not a burden. There's, an, there's obedience, but there's no burden. There is effort. Effort and burden aren't the same thing. There's effort but it's never given grudgingly. The old King James says God commands are not grievous. We don't use words like that much anymore. I don't feel grief about obeying God. When God's grace comes into my heart freely, graciously, comes into my heart, I don't feel I'm being shortchanged in any way obeying the Lord. I, I start to see beauty in God's ways. It's really all summed up 
It's really all summed up in that third verse. For this, this is the love of God. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This means I, I keep the commandments, but out of love for God. We, we hear that so often that it probably doesn't strike us as much as it should. This truth really defines the Christian. Only the Christian can say that. Only the Christian looks over his experience in Christ and he comes to this, this conclusion. This, this, is, this, is, this is my love for God. I, I keep his commandments. It's not a burden. You see, the religious moralist, he keeps commandments because he hopes to make God love him. All sorts of religions are like that. The atheist, he may even keep some of the commandments because he thinks it will benefit mankind while he's here on earth, make him a better person. But only the Christian, only the Christian keeps the commandments because because he loves God through Christ. He loves God because he's already been loved, amazingly loved, pardoned by God. In all of his sin and wickedness, he's been given eternal life in God the Son, Jesus Christ. And because he's been loved so incredibly, so unbelievably, the Christian loves God and wants to obey. He obeys because he has been redeemed. He obeys with joyous love and gratitude. The legalist, tries to obey, hoping to qualify for salvation. The Christian obeys because he's already been redeemed. We love him because because he first loved us. In the genuine disciple, what is called, what are called dead works in the legalist, But in the Christian, in whose heart the Spirit of Christ has come, those same works are called devotion. I'm going to show you. They're called worship. They're aimed not just at self-improvement or personal reform, but they're out of devotion to God. Let me show you where the Bible says that. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. That's grace, right? Grace. Grace received. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's obedience. Holy. Acceptable to God. Look what he calls this. Which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's the tastes, the ambitions, the desires, the affections, the mind. They start to be changed so the commandments aren't a burden anymore. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Look at what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice the way Paul links together the mercies of God with the renewal of the mind. We need to think about those words. Because they're more than just beautiful prose. There's a truth that Paul is kind of hammering out, and it's this. The mind is affected by the reception of grace. It's turned, tilted in the direction of God's commandments. Suddenly, they're not the burden that they once were. 
Even when I fail, I'm not perfect. Even when I fail in my efforts, even when I sin, my mind and heart, they're still seeking after God's ways. That means, that means when I sin, I sin with grief. That's a huge difference. I may not yet be perfect, but I don't love my sin anymore. That's not where I live. I am devoted to God. That's the change grace has made. What I love is to please God, even when I do it imperfectly. What I'm striving for is the forsaking of sin. That's, that's the new direction that grace has brought into my life. And, and, and here's Paul's main point. It's the receiving and reviewing and rethinking of God's mercies in Christ Jesus. That's what has brought this new direction and this new joy. So, so grace fuels obedience by changing or renewing, to use Paul's word, renewing my mind about this whole subject of obeying God. This is what John means. We looked at these verses earlier. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Strong words. Does he mean I'm never going to sin again? No, that's, that's not what he means. What he means is, I, since, since God's Spirit has come into my heart and, and turned the lights on about God's mercy and grace in Jesus Christ and all that is promised there, I can no longer find my source of delight in sin. I find my delight in God's promises. I can't dwell in sin when grace has done its work in my heart. In my renewed mind, there's no joy, no perceived future. No satisfaction in self-will and sin. Sins become the burden. God's ways are not the burden. Well, Pastor Don, I hear you, but I often find it very, very hard to resist temptation. In certain areas of my life, I really find it hard to obey God. So, so what are you saying? Am I not a Christian? And I want to be clear, no, that's not what I'm saying. Please understand, it will, until Jesus comes, it will always take effort, lots of effort to walk in God's ways. It will be a constant battle. It will never be easy this side of heaven. But while it constantly takes effort, it's effort I long to expend. All right, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about the tilt of your heart. I don't consider the effort to repent, to follow God as best I can. I don't consider that a waste of time because since experiencing his grace in my heart, I don't consider his promises to be empty. He has been so gracious to me in Christ that I trust his heart. That's the direction I'm pushing. It takes, it takes a lot of effort but it's not a burden. Because of the grace I've so lavishly received in Christ, it means I, I always give God the benefit of the doubt in temptation with my own desires. He has, he has proven his love 
so that I don't consider his commandments to be an interruption or a misery. I make every effort to obey God because I believe God's promises so fully and I know that's where my future is. The the terms we use to explain this, they need to be precise and thought through so people don't get discouraged. I said before, let me just take a minute. Effort is not the same as burden. It will always take effort to follow Jesus. That doesn't make it a burden. It takes effort. It takes thought to be a good husband. But because I love my wife, the effort isn't a burden. It takes diligence. It takes thought. It takes effort. But it's not a burden. That's a small picture of how God's grace has changed my heart toward him. Let me explain this a bit more because it's so key to everything else. The Bible describes, I think, basically two kinds of approach to the commands of God. And these two types of verses will be a source of confusion unless the context is, the whole picture is understood. So A, I'm talking about two approaches to the commandments. A, first there's the approach to God's command apart from his grace in Jesus Christ. Or let me say it a bit differently. There's the, there's the natural approach, maybe even a religious approach to the rules of God without the, without the uh, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit through God's grace in Jesus Christ. We looked at this indirectly when we looked at these verses, this verse from 1 John 4.13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. That's the starting place. The Holy Spirit begins everything. The Spirit works saving me, savingly in my life by attaching me to Jesus Christ. John's terminology, abiding. We abide, see, right there. So, if I approach God's law, apart from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, it's just going to be bare duty. Now, that might be a mindset of absolute rebellion. You've seen it. Who is God to tell me what to do? Don't even believe in him. Probably more commonly, it may be a misuse of the law of God by trying to turn it into a system to earn my salvation by my own law-keeping apart from faith in Jesus Christ. But the main point is, whenever people approach God's law, apart from his grace in Jesus Christ, they find it hard, discouraging, condemning, aggravating. That's the only way they can see God's law because they're misusing it. If you make God's laws your means to approaching him, you're doomed to misery. Okay, that's the wrong approach. That's not what John is advocating. When the law is approached that way, it's called, it's called Romans 4.15, the law that brings wrath. 
It's called the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, 2 Corinthians 3, 7. Paul says in Romans 7, 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Nothing good will come from trying to be obeying God as best you can, but apart from receiving his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. There's nothing good that's going to happen in your life. Now, here's the other approach, B. It's clear from the scriptures that there's another way of approaching the law of God that brings a very different response from the heart. Let me show you how it shows up, even places in the Old, in the Old Testament. Psalm 119, 29 to 32. Here's the psalmist's prayer. This is the prayer of a person who has found the commandments aren't a burden. Put false ways far from me. Graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. Oh Lord, let me not be put to shame. I will, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Commandments aren't a burden. Look at these words. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. John, his commandments aren't burdensome. He's not perfect, but his commands aren't a burden. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. New Testament. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is really striking. I mean, those two sets of verses, a law of wrath, a ministry of death, I run in the direction of your commandments, I love your law, they're describing the same law. Exactly the same law. What's going on here? What's happening? Well, in short, you, you really have to love God before you can love his law. And you can't love God until you've known his grace. And the Bible says grace and truth came in Jesus Christ. And your attitude toward the law of God changes. We keep his commandments, and his commandments aren't a burden. John says we love him because he first loved us, 419. So when God reaches in, and when he changes my understanding of who he is, when I see who he is in Jesus Christ, when his spirit comes and cleanses my dirty little heart and fills me with his grace and holds the promise of eternal life and all of that freely given, what it does is it changes the way I view pleasing God. His commandments aren't a burden. I, I, I begin, maybe like this, I begin to be shaped more by his promises than my own desires because, because he's revealed his loving intentions so fully to me in Jesus Christ. And now, 
we're in the best position to understand these words in our text, John 5, 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I trust his promises more than my own desires. And you start to not just, I've said it a thousand times, you start to not just pursue righteousness, you start to prefer righteousness. And that's the sure evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. That's the sure evidence of divine mercy and divine grace transforming and changing your heart. You're not going to be perfect till Jesus comes again. But God doesn't want his commandments to be a burden. He wants his promises to ring true and his commandments to be a source of joy. Let's pray. We really do need to study your whole word, the book. You have that tool that the Holy Spirit uses to change the way we think. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that everyone in this room and everyone watching, we would just just pause and have our hearts and lives more deeply transformed because of our reliance on your mercy and a a fresh vision of your, your wonderful mercy toward us in Jesus Christ. Let it inspire our worship for sure and let it shape our desires even more. More and more until the day we see you face to face. And then John says, we'll be just like you. And we can't wait for that day. In Jesus' name I pray.